Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Bonus episode, Plague, War, and Hellfire, with Rebecca Radiel. Today, I'm delighted to speak with Rebecca Radiel. Rebecca is... Well, what isn't she? She's a historian of the Stuart dynasty and 17th century Britain, completing a PhD at Royal Holloway. She's an author, and her book, 1666, Plague, War and Hellfire, is just as amazing as you'd expect with a title like that. Her next non-fiction work, God's Throne, is expected out sometime in 2021 or 2022. She's produced history documentaries. She's a podcaster, hosting Killing Time with Rebecca Radiel, a wonderfully macabre history podcast. And she's the founder of HistFest, the public history festival. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, well, thank you for having me. And I feel that's a really nice introduction. I think you should introduce my my every day now, please. (laughs) (laughs) That would be great. (laughs) So 1666 is brilliant in a word. I bought it at the start of lockdown because unfortunately it's awfully relevant all of a sudden. Mm, Yeah. I read it, and I loved it, and I jumped at the chance to have you on to talk about it. So the subtitle of 1666 nicely divides the book into three themes. Firstly, there's plague. Now, plague was, of course, endemic in Britain, and it had been for centuries. So what made the 1665-66 to outbreak so noteworthy? It's a really tough question, actually. It's one that I've been asked quite a lot, because obviously it's known as the Great Plague. And it's a very... I mean, it is. It was a. It was a great plague. It, um, not great as in happy. It was rather huge. But yeah, it's. I think because it's the the final big epidemic that hit England. It's kind of that that label has been um, has has remained intact. When in actual fact, there were plagues that happened before that point in in the seventeenth century, the early seventeenth century, which were also known as the Great Plague. Um. So. I mean, in a nutshell, it it probably killed the most, the highest number of people. But obviously, population, um, the population had increased since the early seventeenth century as well. So, in a nutshell, I suppose there were a hundred 
100,000 people, we think, died of plague during that period in in um, in London predominantly. Um, and that was out of a population of around 450,000 people. So it's and obviously there were, you know, there was another um, portion of that population that had had the plague and survived as well. So it was a really widespread problem and something that affected every person's life, particularly in the capital. So once the reports, obviously there have been reports of the plague on the continent, but once the the reports of, of plague deaths in England reached the authorities, how did they react? Um, well, to start with, obviously, as you, you mentioned um, in your question, plague was endemic um, in England during this time. So there were, you know, there were one or two deaths from plague across the country pretty much every year. Um, so I guess having having one plague death um, is not necessarily a remarkable thing. It's when these numbers start to increase. So the authorities, um, when they got wind of these of these um, cases, the ones that we, we know about and um, are documented, seem to have originated in St Giles in the Fields, which is a parish um, outside the walls of the city walls of London. Um, and measures were put in place and we we've we've all heard about the you know the idea of houses being shut up and particularly at the moment we're very aware with self you know of about self isolation and things um so if if somebody was found to have have plague then their house was was shut up and that basically means it was locked up and the people were not allowed to leave the premises everybody within that household not necessarily just the person that um had plague and they were quarantined there for 40 days um and and you do get some instances in in the historical records um and the archives of people you know actually defying these these rules and breaking out of um quarantine and one particular case that happened in St Giles in the Fields Charles II was made aware of and he asked that they be dealt with in the most severest way um and now plague punishments for public disorder dur- during plague time have a long history um and in actual fact um, and you see this particularly in the plays and um, pamphlets that were written in the early 17th century. Plague outbreaks were often associated in the public conscience with public disorder and the breakdown of the breakdown of order. So plays like The Alchemist, um, pamphlets by people such as Thomas Decker, they talk about um, particular places being almost where order has just gone awry and um, people are doing anything that they want and um, it's so it's so it's interesting this this association um, and some of the some of the punishments for wandering around the street when you you know you know you have plague were, were very severe so they included things like whipping um public whipping and um um, and other unsavory um things that would not be accept- acceptable in 2020. <laughs> Maybe not the brightest idea to start whipping the person with plague sores. Yeah, probably not the best of ideas, really, to be honest. And um, but I mean, we, we jest, but it was obviously to to create an example to scare people, other people from from doing similar things. So it's kind of extreme punishment in the hope that it would put everybody else off. Um, but yeah, not not particularly pleasant. I think what struck me reading it was how apocalyptic it seemed. Hmm. You do a fantastic job of of, uh, illustrating what London was like after people fled in their thousands. And there'd be a few physicians who decided to stay, but otherwise parts of London were like a ghost town. That's really, really interesting. And it just makes the fact that people were, even then, even in apocalyptic conditions, breaking the rules. Yes. People just don't change. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think, I don't think they do really. And isn't it weird how um, what's been going on recently has given, well, me as a historian of plague, it's given me a greater insight into, into the, into how people must have been feeling and thinking that I just did not appreciate beforehand. The the process of doing the same the same things every day. So early on in lockdown, when I was getting shopping, like lots of people, I was making sure I was sanitizing my hands after putting the shopping away and all of that. And then I just it made me reflect on the processes in place during plague time because people were people believed then that vinegar was um would prevent the spread of the miasma because plague was believed to have been spread by miasma, which if you're not aware of, it's it kind of is a galanic theory that's um that um means that things are spread by bad air there's good air and there's bad air and bad air carries disease and contagion um so they use vinegar on letters um as they were being posted to different places in the city and it was just a process of using vinegar and it just makes you think these kind of like mundane everyday things that you get so used to you don't really you don't really appreciate how much of a toll they actually do take on on your day and it did make me think about the you know the the things things like putting vinegar on letters and stuff so the war of plague war and hellfire is of course the second anglo-dutch war can you go into a bit more detail about why that war broke out so the second anglo-dutch war as is implied by its title was the the second of three actual um wars between the english and the dutch republic now there's lots of reasons for the various causes of each of the three individual wars but one thing one common theme throughout all of them is that it was a it was kind of there were wars about um colonialism i suppose and um trade wars and trying to get monopoly on certain places key locations along the west african coast and then simultaneously along the um american coastline as well they were locked into um the slave trade particularly the the second anglo-dutch war which even though it broke out in 1665 um there had been tensions and many kind of skirmishes i suppose in 1664 um a man named robert holmes who features in the book um, and I won't give too much away about him, um, but he is basically a horrible man. Um, so he he was in charge of raiding several bases along the West African coast to try and take control, so that they could um, so that they could then control the trade with with West Africa. Now it's important to say here that um, he was he and um, subsequent um, uh, sailors and commanders um, were. Um, commissioned by the Royal Africa Company. Um, and the Royal Africa Company was a state-backed company that were explicitly tasked with, firstly, looking for gold. Now, that was a main priority in, in 1665, but also ex- explicitly as well in in the terms was um, an interest in looking for slaves as well and trying to get a foothold in the slave trade in a more... Um, in a bigger, in a much bigger way. Um, so that's one thing that's really important to know about these Anglo-Dutch wars because you can't separate them from the wider world. Um, having said that, in terms of the actual process of the wars and in terms of the actual 
um, engagements. It was all at sea, but it was mainly focused around the North Sea um, and the English Channel. So it was around those those areas, and obviously with the war being between the English and the Dutch, these fights were quite you know quite close to the, um, the coastlines most of the time, and people could actually hear the firing of cannon fire. Um, they gathered news very quickly because you'd have these huge warships, um, which you know would carry hundreds of hundreds of men on board and um, but then you'd have these smaller little boats that were tasked with coming back and forwards with supplies but also taking back information to the mainland which would then be carried probably by um a messenger which was usually an aristocrat to be honest but a young one and um, the earl of rochester famous now for writing dirty poetry was um, engaged in these wars and he often played messenger um but they would bring back information that would then be taken to the king and the city of London where they could assess how things were going. Um, so these were, yeah, these were naval, it was a naval war um, with most of the battles fought at sea, but it was a really, it was a really big deal at the time. And these wars have kind of been forgotten, I think, um, possibly because there aren't any recognisable heroes on the English side. So obviously with Trafalgar and um and um, the Napoleonic Wars, we do think of Nelson. He's a he's a big name that we can remember. But with with the Anglo-Dutch Wars, we don't really have the same kind of figure during this time, which is quite possibly a good thing. But there still were events which caught the public eye at the time and are still memorable today. Yeah. So obviously, um, yeah, there was there was probably five or six main battles um, that took place. The one of the earliest ones, the Battle of Lowestoft, was a victory for the English. Um, and boy, didn't they like talking about it! <laughs> it was a, it was an early victory, and the Duke of York, um, James, the Duke of York, who was Charles II's brother and was also the future James II, he was in charge of this battle, and it was a it was. Um, as I said, it was a victory. He was very close to death during the t- this time because there were cannons being fired left, right, and centre, and people next to him had had their you know bodies torn apart and perished as a result of the war, and he managed to survive. Um, so that was a major, a major battle that stayed in public imagination, and there were portraits and paintings made it afterwards commemorating the commanders that had been in charge um, there were another series of battles as well um, but then I think the most famous one in terms of impact and um, posterity is perhaps quite possibly um, the raid on the Medway which actually happened in 1667 and this was where the Dutch actually invaded England and took away um, the prize warship, um, the the Royal Charles, and um, you can still see part of it in a museum in um, Amsterdam today. So despite some early victories, the war as a whole doesn't go well for the English. So what was the legacy of the Second Anglo-Dutch War. The legacy is a again another tricky one. It was unfinished business. The first war was unfinished business because nothing was actually resolved. They might have won the war, but there was still the wider issue of um, of you know the the wider world and um, the lust for gold and the money that could be accrued with slaves. I mean, that was a continuing situation globally. So it doesn't matter if you win a war when you're in a commercial rivalry with another country, because that rivalry is still going to be there. And that's why we see a series of three wars break out. The third one, um, the actual events that led up to to war and the battles that followed was more political um, and it was more down to Charles II doing deals with Louis XIV in France. Um, 
and he kind of stay so there's this daft rule that any any ship that goes along the channel has to salute to an english warship um i mean it's it's ridiculous um it's a kind of ego thing on the english part so dutch ships i mean most people largely you know adhered to this rule dutch ships french ships they would they would salute the english ships um but Charles knew this and he sent a ship that wasn't technically a warship so it didn't technically have to be have to be saluted um but he sent a he sent a, a, a ship more like a boat actually um into a melee of of dutch ships and they didn't salute and he used this as a an act of war and um started a war with the dutch but it was all down to politics and rivalry between louis the 14th and um the Prince of Orange at the time as well. So, I mean, that's a co- it's a, they're all complicated, but as I say, they're, they're all mainly rooted in commercial rivalry and the politics of power on the um, northern continent as well. So that's the war polished off. Yep. <laughs> so what about Hellfire, the Great Fire of London, the incredibly famous event where Samuel Pepys buried his cheese? That's the one thing that everyone seems to know yep. about. It. But could you give us a brief rundown of the fire? How did it begin? How long it burned? What kind of damage did it cause? Okay, um, so the fire broke out in early September of 1666, um, and we know this story from school. We all know we all know what happened. Um, it broke out in Thomas Farriner's bakehouse. Um, whether it was him, whether it was he who had left his um, oven on, or whether it was his daughter, I don't know. I, I would like to think it might have been a might not have been him actually but anyway we don't know so the fire broke out it spread very quickly along pudding lane the measures that could have perhaps prevented it spreading were not put in place straight away um and these measures included pulling included pulling down surrounding houses um and this was a tried and tested method it worked if you put you know if you had a fire you create a fire break to pull down the houses around it and it will stop the spread um but the Lord Mayor, uh, the Mayor of London, he didn't do this. And there are various reasons why. Firstly, he was slightly inept. But secondly, he didn't own the buildings. He, he, you know, they were owned by external people. And London was a city of landlords and tenants. So even if he'd been able to get hold of the people that were living in the house at the time and in time, um, they wouldn't have been able to give him permission to pull these buildings down. So that didn't happen. So the fire spread very quickly along Pudding Lane, then made its way down towards the River Thames and along Fleet, um, um, sorry, not Fleet, along Thames Street. Um, and this was a an area that had lots of combustible goods. So oil, alcohol, fish, meats, all, all those types of things. And it kind of erupted big style when it got there and spread across most of most of the city of London over the ensuing four, four and a half days. Um, in terms of damage, if you look at maps, um, um, maps of the city immediately following the fire, you can see how the um the city of london which is the walled section of london you can see that how that's largely been destroyed there's 80 percent of that part of the city was was eradicated um basically um and yeah i mean it was a really traumatic event for everybody that was witnessing it samuel peeps um in his diary gives a really vivid account of the progress of the of the fire um including all the different buildings and significant buildings for people living in the city at the time that were being destroyed and um, the kind of 
financial district was was destroyed as well but they but the bankers were um prioritized in a way and they were given um space to work in the the buildings that usually house the royal society uh, gresham college um much to the um, annoyance of the members of the royal society so you know they they those were things that were important to people at the time, but then bigger buildings that we associate with historic London, like Old St Paul's Cathedral, we know was was ruined. Um, the Guildhall was was badly damaged. Um, loads of churches. Uh, to be honest, there were probably too many churches in London at that time, anyway. But loads of them were destroyed. Um, just shy of ninety actually were destroyed. Um, and then also buildings that we may have slightly forgotten about today so um baynard's castle which was a massive building um on the the riverfront and um, which had been there for hundreds and hundreds of years and it was a significant location that was destroyed as well so it did feel apocalyptic and you mentioned that word before but it did feel that way to the people witnessing the fire at the time and the way that it's been described as you know as it's it's almost um, supernatural the the way the fire was progressing and the shapes that it was creating in the sky. I actually found reading sixteen sixty six that much like when you're describing the spread of the plague, when you're describing the great fire, it it was just so engaging. I couldn't put the book down. I think anyone that writes history, you want to make it readable, and I absolutely love fiction. Um, I I should flag that all my. My work is rooted in historical fact and archival research. None of it is fiction, but I've got. I, I like looking for those things that can draw people in. So, you know, if I, if there is any small reference to what was going on um, visually, I like to include that because I think it helps to paint a picture of big events in people's minds. Because there, you know, things like a, a great plague and a great fire, they're things that most of us will never experience and even now i mean with coronavirus we feel like we've lived through a you know a a large scale epidemic and we have but it's nothing when you compare it to the great plague absolutely nothing when you think when you think of the sheer number of you know the the sheer proportion of people that were dying as a result of the great plague it's it's something that's almost unimaginable um, and the same goes for the great fire of london to see an entire city burn wh- who who will experience that i mean it's not something that we can we can really imagine perhaps war zones um there'd be comparisons there but it's um yeah these were huge events in people's lives and they did look to you know they they looked to god and religion to try and make sense of it you know what had they done to cause these things what were they being punished for um whose fault was it um so yeah i mean i think if you can make it visual i think that's an important thing when writing history i think what also helps keep the reader engaged and it certainly kept me hooked was the way the book follows certain individuals you have peeps, of course, but you also write about other people who haven't left the same mark on history that peeps did. One group you look at are a merchant family who plan to marry their daughter to the son of another family, but then that son dies in the plague and so his younger brother takes his place. And you just follow these two families through this absolutely calamitous couple of years. And it really brings home the reality of these events. Yeah, and I think the family you're referring to, the Mitchells, um, yeah, they're... <sighs> I, and I confess, I found them. This is the thing: when you when you're um, writing about the restoration, you you are blessed with Samuel Pepys's diary. Like you, you cannot ignore the richness of that source material. You cannot 
um, be complacent when you're you know you're thinking about your own period when you know that you've got Samuel Pepys as a source for the for Restoration London because he gives such a great guided tour of the city but it's important to remember that it's through his eyes and his eyes were his eyes he's not typical of that time and you should never think that one person is typical of any time because we're all different we're all individuals and we've all got our own flaws and um you know interests and passions so it's always important to remember that because it's such a rich um source that you could be tempted to use you know rely too much on that but what peeps does offer is hints and clues about other people's lives that are lower down the social order so the Mitchells do pop up in Peeps's diary and you can use his references to to um, unravel their life stories so as soon as I got the names from his diary I was then able to go into the parish records and see what else I could find out I was then able to look through um Early English Books Online, which is a great online resource, which does what it says on the tin. It has all the books that were printed and published that we've we found and we know about um, online. So I could see what what books might have been sold in the you know from the Mitchells or any other you know other merchants that were living and operating in London at that time that may have been mentioned in passing in Pepys's diary. So it's yeah it's detective work. But then you know as a historian it is all detective work, isn't it? And that's part of the joy of doing it. But if you can shine a light on quote unquote ordinary people's lives, then I think it's it helps create a better picture of what. The world might have been like rather than just looking to you know a couple of high profile individuals so once the fires were successfully put out eventually and the rebuilding began who was blamed for the fire did they know that the fire had started in pudding lane they did have a sense that it came from pudding lane while, while the fire was going on and they also had a sense that it came from a bakehouse and they they got the location of the bakehouse wrong um on a couple of occasions other other bakeries were blamed <laughs> Um, but yeah, they did know where the epicenter was. They they certainly knew that. But there was also a feeling, and and you see in the descriptions from of the Great Fire, there was a there was a feeling that it was an act of arson as well. And to be perfectly honest, you can kind of understand why this you know these rumours were going round. Firstly, they were at war. That England was at war with the Dutch and also the French. I mean, I mentioned the French before, but they were at war with the French technically as well because the French were on the Dutch side due to an earlier agreement. That's very complicated. But so there, there were natural foreign um, enemies to be fearful of. Um, but then the, the way that the fire progressed, huge chunks of debris were flying through the air and landing quite far away from, you know, from where they'd, they'd broken away. Um, so it did seem as though the fire was breaking out in multiple locations and it didn't quite make sense how that could be happening. But obviously there was a strong um, wind blowing across the city. So this probably helped these pieces of debris fly further than they, they would have done ordinarily. Um, so blame. Let's get back to that. That was your question. <laughs> so anyone with a foreign sounding accent was at risk during the fire. Um, this was a has all all times in history this was a really xenophobic period of time and there were violent attacks on anybody that sounded like they didn't come from London originally that some of these attacks I mean all of the the attacks are really dark some of them are really really dark now I don't know who your listeners are so feel free to cut this one out but there's one there's one um, account 
of a a woman having her breasts cut off um because they thought that she was carrying firebomb uh, she was carrying um fi- firebombs i suppose um in her in her dress when actual fact it was just a chicken these are strange accounts um the accounts of men being dismembered um it's uh, it's very graphic and not very pleasant to read so any you know any foreign born person was blamed um more broadly people blame themselves as i as i said before they they were looking to to god and to religion and thinking about what they might have done themselves to cause the this punishment and they included the three things they included the war the great plague and the great fire of london in their sins they they were seen as three parts of the same thing um and there were there were various you know reasons for this blame as as well so that it was either their them sinning personally it was it was charles ii whose court was being licentious and sinful or it was perhaps punishment for the regicide of charles i which had happened um a decade or so um earlier they, they they found they found a man um, who was basically used as a scapegoat. He said that he'd started the fire and he managed to lead the authorities to the location of the um, the outbreak of the fire. And he did this correctly. Um, but looking back at the records now, it seems as though he was probably at sea at the time that the fire broke out. So he didn't do it. Why he confessed, I don't know. Um, you often get strange confessions in history, don't you? Um for crimes i'm i'm not sure um whether yeah we don't know why he confessed to that to to starting the fire but in any case he was um he was tried found guilty and executed as a result um thomas fariner got off scot free he was he was um he was fine he carried on trading afterwards um so yeah i mean but then people were still thinking about the fire for a long time after it was something that stayed in in people's minds peeps in his diary talks about having nightmares about the fire as well um it was a really formative and monumental episode in the lives of pretty much anyone that lived through it one of the things that i do remember from school and it's quite striking considering the scale of the fire but famously only a few people are officially on the death toll hmm yeah. As I've learnt in your book, that's not necessarily the case, is it? No, and I do think if anyone tells you they know how many people died during the Great Fire, they're lying. Um, because we, we we can't know. We cannot know. Um, and even just going through the records myself, like you can see there are there there are themes that um don't make sense. Um the the um the number of elderly people dying in the in the week of the fire, uh, for example shoots up so you it it doesn't it doesn't make sense and then there appear to be no you know in other in other records there are no deaths of um, small children that week well that doesn't make sense because they're all they're always there so if they're not if they're not present in the records where are they and there are curiosities when it comes to the fire and what I what I tend to think about and what I look to even though it was a couple of centuries later, the Great Fire of Chicago was very similar in its makeup. It was very similar in the in the population of the city at the time. It was a wooden city um, in terms of the duration of the fire as well. And what we see from the Great Fire of Chicago, and the records were kept better then, is that a few hundred people, two or three hundred people, died during that fire. And I would guess, and again, I'm, this is absolutely a guess, um, that 
the the casualties of the Great Fire of London probably sits closer to that than the um, you know half a dozen that's often said. So moving on to slightly less slightly less morbid yeah. topic, the one of the things that really struck me outside of the themes of Plague War and Hellfire, one of the things that struck me reading 1666 was the relationship between King Charles II and the future James the Seventh and Second. Because on Pax Britannica, we've looked at Elizabeth, we've looked at James, and we've looked at Charles I. None of them, when they come to the throne, have siblings. And so I found the fact that Charles is king, and his brother, who is increasingly looking like his heir, is also around. And I think that's really interesting. I wonder if you could tell me a bit more about that. Um... Yeah, it is interesting. So when Charles takes the throne, and obviously there's a huge caveat here because he had been declared King of Scotland, you know, way before. But when when the restoration happens in 1660, um, he does have siblings, and it's not just it's not just um, James. He has you know brother, sister as well, and it's it's interesting to think about that dynamic and the way that the way that it works. Certainly, his sister, who was um, in France you know was was a good diplomat i suppose she she was able to um pass on messages and send things back to her brother um in terms of james and charles specifically they're they were very different men very different in so many ways but similar in in others in intellect i think that's the most glaring difference between the two i think they were both you know they both had similar educations but charles was was canny. Charles was um, sharp and I think he was very good at manipulating people in a subtle way. Um, Whereas James was a bit more brash. He kind of wore his heart and his brain on his sleeve um, and was very stubborn, whereas Charles was more pliable and open to changing his mind and, and views should it be you know should he should he think it was you know would help him in the long term so you've got that difference in personality which is key and you can see it you can see without being too crass about it you can see how it plays out in their respective reigns as well um i think if james i mean this is getting into counterfactual history now but if james had been the king during you know if he he, if he had been the king um at the point of the restoration would the monarchy have managed to ride through the Great Plague and the Great Fire and the Anglo-Dutch Wars as easily, well, relatively easily as, as they had with Charles. I'm not so sure. Um, so so that you've got that. But then also they were loyal as well. So while there were, they had these huge differences and they certainly had fallouts and fallouts over mistresses as well as everything else. Um, and, you know, court was very political, but it was very political and also emotional um there were affairs going on left right and center between people that were related you know fathers and sons not far between fathers and sons i mean fathers and sons going after the same mistress yeah they you know they were all it was a very small world um so you had all these rivalries but then equally as we know charles was very loyal to his brother so when the exclusion crisis um reared its head in the late 1670s early 1680s he he was adamant that that James would be his heir it was never going to be the Duke of Monmouth who was um, Charles the Charles II's illegitimate um, firstborn son um, who was a Protestant James had declared himself to be Catholic 
Um, and that was, I should say, and that was the root of the exclusion crisis. Um, so, yeah, it, they had an interesting dynamic, which was loyal at its heart to one another, but equally they had huge differences in personality. The Restoration Court was infamous for its, in the language of the time, the immoral behaviour, the, the debauchery and all of that kind of thing. Um, and you mentioned him earlier, Rochester. He's out there penning terribly dirty poems about the goings-on. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about how this was received in an, in early modern society, especially after the Cromwellian regime. Yeah, um, I think what we, what we what we often do is we separate periods from one another too severely. There's a tendency to um, separate 1660 from 1659. So there were lots of threads that ran through, even from Cromwell's time. Um, you know, lots of culturally London didn't change overnight and it didn't change that much in some respects as well but in terms of a royal court with you know that was flaunting affairs quite openly that was new um that that was a fresh development obviously kings throughout and queens throughout history had had affairs they'd had love affairs and um they'd done things that may have been viewed as immoral at the time but to do it publicly was a different a different kettle of fish. And that's what Charles was doing, and that's what James was doing, um, and that's what the rest of the court was doing as well. So he, there was a kind of honeymoon period with Charles II from 1660 until the disasters of the mid-1660s. And then after that, the, the populace tended to be a little bit more critical. Now, I'm, I'm, I want to say that with caution because... Obviously, most people living in England um, wouldn't have really cared at all about what was going on with the royal court. Most people lived in in rural villages. They were, you know, farmers still. So we're talking about urban urban chatter and chatter between aristocrats here. Um, and when I say urban, it's predominantly London as well. So in response to Charles's multiple affairs, um, there was an interesting thing called the Bawdy House Riots in 1668, where apprentices... Um, rioted um, against um, lots of brothels in, in in London and demanding entry. Now, this wasn't this wasn't an attack on the morals of of brothels. This was more because the the proprietors had put up their rates to such a level that the apprentices couldn't afford to have their time with a prostitute. <laughs> so that's why they were rioting. But out of this, you get. Um, pamphlets um, that are written to a Lady Castlemaine, who was Charles II's chief mistress at this time, um, aligning her with the prostitutes and talking to her as their sister. Um, So it's interesting that there was almost a freedom to be able to be critical of the court in this way in pamphlets, and people weren't shy of, of being critical. Now, I think, you know, that you still had to be cautious because you were criticising the king, but one person that was able to get around this, um, and I think I think it's a really interesting example, was, as you, as you said, the Earl of Rochester, because he was in on the inside, but he was able to be critical as well. And now we often just think of his poetry as dirty poetry, and, and you know, in truth, a lot of it actually is. But it was satirical as well, and I think that's something that we need to remember. He was someone that was able to write these awful dirty poems that are critical of the king but actually do it and get away with it um and i think that's that's an interesting development um so yeah i mean there were reactions to to charles court um and his licentiousness 
how widely were these distributed? Were they just kept within the court as like kind of in-jokes? Or did they make their way to a printer? They were pinned up in key locations. So in, in London, you had the key places where notices were put up. So one was the gates of um, Whitehall or the gates of Westminster. And um, they were read there by, by crowds and uh, people gathering round. Um, the other thing to say as well, which I probably should have said before, is that the court was made a really bad name for itself when it was in Oxford during the Great Plague. Um, and there's a there was an Oxford academic, Anthony Wood, who wrote about their time there and wrote how they were all basically the only thing they were bothered about was the clothes that they were wearing and wearing nicer you know, nicer fashions than one another and also who was having a love affair with who and um the other thing that he said which is rather disgusting is how that they were basically shitting in um the, the houses that they were staying in but like in the rooms um not in the loos so 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 there's that as well that i i should have probably mentioned and actually while they were in oxford there was a, a notice put up about um Charles's mistress, Lady Castlemaine, again, saying that the reason that she wasn't ducked, which means a ducking stool that was used for um, women, um, so the reason that she wasn't ducked was because by the king she was fucked. Um, and that just gives you an insight into how people were thinking about the court at the time. <laughs> so for your next project, God's Throne, mm-hmm. can you tell us something about that? I can, uh, Yeah, I can tell you a little bit about that. So God's Throne is... Um, a big history so that's why it's taken me a while to write it um, but it's about the um the Stuarts. well it's the, a history of the Stuart dynasty from 1603 to 1714 and it looks at the family um through the lens of power and the interplay with with parliament um but also because i just love the histories of ordinary people as well that's kind of that flows throughout it too um so it's a big big sweeping history i hope it's i hope people like it when it's done um it's taken a lot of work um and yes i mean i'm enjoying still writing it but um it's not not ready to be released just yet well when it is that's a pre-order from me guaranteed oh great one customer (laughs) (laughs) and if it could come out before i get past uh, 1714 that would be even better yeah sure so for listeners who are catching this interview the day it comes out, or a few days after, on the 23rd of September 2020, Rebecca is giving a talk at the Fellows online on the regicide of Charles I. Now, Rebecca, would you be able to, very briefly, sell listeners on why they should come along to your talk? Well, if you like kings having their heads chopped off, and if you like the the power of the people, um, then this is the talk for you. <laughs> no, it's... Um, <laughs> yeah, it's. I'm basically looking at the... Um, the, regicide, the, the events that led up to the regicide of Charles I, what actually happened during the trial, and we have some beautiful trial transcripts um, that, that still exist, um, and then also its legacy and the way that Charles has been represented throughout time. Um, it's quite it's quite a nice, not a nice, but it's quite a fun, if I can say that word, talk. Um, and hopefully it gives a, a bit of a flavour of the the situation um, in England during those heady mid-17th century years. <laughs> <laughs> well, such a, such a peaceful, quiet time. Not, not much else happening. I'll leave a link to that talk in the description of this episode. Five pounds a ticket. Bargain. With that, thank you so much for, for coming on, Rebecca. This has been amazing. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'll definitely have to, have to get you on to talk about God's Throne when that's on its way out. Yeah, in about... 
30 years. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thanks. Thanks again to Rebecca Radil for coming on to speak with me. You can find 1666, Plague, War and Hellfire at all good bookshops, and I'll leave a link in the description to this episode. There's so much more in 1666 that we didn't talk about. The important role of espionage and spycraft during the war, the diplomatic games played between the belligerent powers, the flourishing theatre culture, the lawless wasteland of post-fire London, with its ruins and cellars full of murders in the dark, and how modern London could have looked vastly different. With Christmas on the horizon, 1666 might just be the perfect gift for someone you know. I wholeheartedly recommend it for anyone interested in the period, or just for those who'd like a reminder that no matter how terrible things may seem, it could always be worse. There will also be a link to register for the Regicide Talk for £5, which again is on the 23rd of September at 6pm British Summertime. If you're not able to make it, or you're only hearing this after it's happened, then you can also purchase the recording of the event for only £3. It promises to be a fantastic event, and if there's any questions you wish I'd asked Rebecca now, there's your chance. Thank you to my House of Lords, which has a new face in Yannick, Viscount Stiller. A veteran peer, Christopher Burton, has ascended the social scale and is now the Earl of Worcester. They are joining my royal favourites, Andrew Shoemaker and Mike Sanders, the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich, the Royal Headsman, Executed Today, the Duke of Clarence, Rory Martin, the Duke of Ormond, Brendan Bonner. Thank you to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.